Hi, this is Patricia. And this is Christina. And this is What They're Worth. A podcast exposing the truths of everyday people who are willing to enter the beautiful mess of foster care and adoption. We're glad you're here. Everybody, we want to welcome you to episode 17. We are so excited for this episode with our guest, Melissa Corkum. She is a transracial adoptee and a transracial adoptive parent, and she'll tell you more about that. But this episode is really focusing on the challenges and the joys of parenting kids who have attachment struggles, and also all about how we can change our perspective and craft our approach to parenting based on the personality and different traits of our individual kids. I hope you'll listen and learn as much as we did. Well, we're very excited to have you on episode 17. And Melissa, you bring a lot of different roles and experiences to the table. So why don't you just start by giving us a brief overview of all your awesomeness? (laughs) Well, thanks. I am an adult adoptee, which didn't feel significant to me until I actually became an adoptive mom. So that's the other part of my story is we have six kids, two by birth and four through adoption, uh, one from Korea and three were born in Ethiopia. And then we also have a really, really cute granddaughter. She's like one and a half, which is a really fun age. So that's like our family. We live just north of Baltimore, and my husband and I have been married for 18 years. And I now work with foster and adoptive families uh, to help them manage challenging behaviors, to help them understand themselves and their kids better. So I'm also, my husband and I are empowered to connect parent trainers, and I am also a certified Enneagram coach and certified essential oil specialist. So I kind of broach all of that, bring it all in and just tell people that I help them find brain-based solutions to all of their challenges. Talk about a renaissance woman (laughs) and a power couple. Yes. That is awesome. That's a cool, so many cool. And like, I like how everything that all of these certifications and all of your knowledge just comes back, like you said, to, to this cause and to helping. So I think that's really neat how those weave together. So Melissa has one of, I, I think, one of the crazier adoption stories, especially her kids that were born in Ethiopia. So uh, hopefully tell us a little bit about your journey to adoption as an adoptive parent. Yeah, so we started with two kids by birth, and then we adopted a toddler from Korea in 2009, and he's still our youngest. So in 2012, we thought that we would adopt from Ethiopia. Ethiopia has a really special place in our hearts. We have friends who were missionaries there, and we had helped an agency start a host program. So we had really gotten to know a lot of people from the country and a lot of kids. And the adoption process at the time, seemed approachable like you had to travel but you didn't have to travel for like weeks and weeks and weeks on end you know like we wouldn't get stuck in country for like a month it was like kind of like a week at a time and and it was two trips but we had heard that the adoption process was really slowing down that the wait was getting very long and my husband had just started 
a master's program. And we knew that when we did eventually adopt again, that we wanted to do it after that program was finished. But we're also really impatient people. So we thought, well, if there's a really long wait, why don't we apply now, knowing that there's a really long wait and kind of like bank on that wait while he finishes his master's program? Anybody want to guess how this is going to go? I know. I know. It feels like foster care, right? Like you think it's going to take forever. And then all of a sudden, like the next day you have kids. So anyway, no one, well, not no one bothered to tell us. We didn't do our due diligence, but the wait time actually was in getting matched. And it was because there was a long line of people who wanted healthy infants and toddlers. And there was a paperwork hold up, getting them all paper ready. But we have always kind of felt like we were called to adopt kids who were kind of harder to place. And we had already done a toddler adoption and it actually had was very, very hard. He was kind of the impetus for how we started to relearn everything we had thought we knew about parenting. And so we knew toddler adoption wasn't necessarily easy. And we had spent a lot of time in student ministries and had a big heart for teenagers. And so we just thought, you know, if there are kids out there who need a home that are older, we could do that. And we also thought we wanted to keep a sibling group together. So when we filled out our application, we told our agency that we would take up to three children, any age and any gender. And so, of course, there were tons of paper-ready kids with that description because we weren't waiting necessarily for an infant or a toddler. So we turned our dossier in on like February 28th, 2012, and we had a match 24 hours later. And we were on a plane to Ethiopia like three and a half weeks later. So by April 30th, we were in country with our current three kids, um, my husband and myself and my (laughs) father-in-law. Wow. That is funny. Yeah. Yeah. And we, and that that was actually only for two kids that I know they didn't have a sibling group, but they were like, you could, um, Maybe these two children, they let us adopt a boy and a girl who are 13 and 14 years old from different orphanages, which in hindsight feels like I wouldn't recommend adopting like 13 and 14 year old cross-gendered children who didn't know each other. I just feel like that probably was not a wise decision. Um, and then we found out that our son had been, had grown up with another girl who was also going to be available for adoption. So on our trip to pick up our older two kids, we actually went to court for a third child and we brought her home a couple months later. So we went from three kids to six kids in like two months and they were 13, 11, 13 and 14 from Ethiopia. Didn't speak English, not related. Wow. And I said, there are people crazier than me out there. Thank you. We always say it takes a certain kind of crazy, but you may be maxed out what we've had on the, (laughs) maybe but it is not the craziest story. So right after that, someone invited me to a Facebook group, which isn't really active anymore, but it was called go big or go home. And it was for people who had adopted sibling groups of three or more. And there were folks on that. Like we had like the small family in that group and we had six kids. It's not even, I mean, it is the number, but it's also like, that is a lot, you know? It it was a lot, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a different country, a different language, the ages. I mean, I'm not hating on it at all, Matt, respect. But that is definitely not the 
not the traditional route. Not that really any of our routes would be seen as traditional. I know. Is it really like a normal and adoption? I know. But I will say in hindsight, I I mean, we did it. We felt called to it. I think it's a Mm -hmm. providential part of our story. But at the same time, I don't think I would recommend it. It was so hard. And we got to the place where we are now where I'm helping people because we got to a place where we needed an immense amount of help and there wasn't any help available. And that was a really hard, hard part of our journey. And I would never want someone else to find themselves there unless they were for sure, for sure, for sure that they were really called to it because um, it is, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. It is very hard. Um, even our kids, I think, you know, on one sense, they really wanted a family and they really thought they wanted to come to America. But also their, what they had conjured up in their heads to be family and to be America had a lot of unrealistic unreal, expectations. And so that also clashed with all of our expectations about, you know, what it would be like to adopt older kids. And so there's just a lot of room for unmet expectations, which can lead to a lot of hurt, a lot of hurt feelings, um, a lot of misunderstanding. And so we have, you know, everything that we have learned and that we now coach families in has definitely been like a trial by fire. Like we learned it all the hard way. (laughs) And most of us do. And that's what all of us, you included, are trying to help people is so hopefully they don't have to learn it in some of the hard ways that we have. Um, so maybe you can talk a little bit about that too, just like your journey to want to get that training. And cause I know we talked about the book, the connected child, and we kind of joked about how we kind of thought like, Oh, this book's kind of silly and like basic. Um, but how just a shift in thinking can affect the child, but also affect us as parents and what expectations we have. I think my early parenting years, parenting kids with really strong attachments, falsely led me to believe that I had some control over how my kids acted and I could control their behavior by leveraging punishments and consequences for bad behavior that hopefully if they were bad enough, right? that our kids would think, well, it doesn't feel really good to like hit my little sister or to mouth off to mom and dad or whatever. And that they would change their ways based on the cause and effect of what would happen when they behaved a certain way. And I'm a rule follower and a people pleaser. And so that worked for me as well when I was growing up and it's how my husband was parented. And so we came into parenting just thinking like, you know, we'll do the same thing with our kids. You know, if they hit, they'll get a timeout. And, you know, if they do something worse, then they might lose a privilege longer, you know, and it kind of like gets bigger as they get older, right? Like privilege, you know, the the period of time gets longer and things like that. But when we brought our youngest son home, none of that worked. Like it just all escalated and backfired. And I didn't know enough about attachment then to really understand, but he didn't really care what we thought about his behavior, (laughs) right? Like, so like our, like 
my angry face when he would do something that he wasn't supposed to didn't make him go like, oh, like I should do something different because I want to make my mom happy. It just made him angrier. Like we just escalated each other for for probably two years and it got really ugly and I didn't like who I was as a mom. I was mad at him. I was kind of resentful. Uh, he was very charming to the outside world. So I also felt like like gaslighting right like like I felt like my experience of him was different than everyone else's experience of him and so it was kind of out of desperation that I dusted off my connected parent book and was like well you know nothing else is working so let's just see what this gal has to say again and I wasn't convinced even after reading it the second time but we started to try things like time-ins and redos and giving voice and all of these things and I could tell that we were making more progress than we had been making using those kind of more traditional parenting methods. And so I just kind of dove headlong into it. Uh, Like I said, go big or go home. So instead of just being kind of the normal parent who reads the book and goes to a conference, I found out that you could become a trainer in this method of parenting. And I just thought uh, it was based pretty much exclusively out of Texas in 2012 I thought there needs to be more people to bring this to other parts of the country. So uh, we kind of thought we were headed towards orphan care ministry at the time. And I told my husband, I was like, we need to go to Texas. We're going to get trained. Like, if we're going to learn enough about this to make it useful in our home, we're going to learn enough about it to also tell other people about it. Um, So I dragged him to Texas in March of 2012. And we became, um, it was like a train the trainer program. So we became trainers. Cool. Yes. So having the training, did that make your parenting journey roses and butterflies afterwards? I wish it had, honestly. And and I don't want to under I don't want people to underestimate how important and foundational it is. And in fact, the sequel to the connected child um comes out on July seventh and it was written by Dr. Karen Purvis, and then the co-host of um, our podcast, The Adoption Connection. And it's it was like a book that was like eight years in the making. And Dr. Purvis actually passed away. I think it's been three or four years now. Um, so this book was finished by her assistant and then her co-author. And I'm so I'm reading an advanced copy right now and just being reminded of all the basics of, you know, what it means when our kids don't have this healthy start in life. But I think it was so revolutionary to think about behaviors communicating a need that I took it to the extreme to then think, well, if I, if that was the case, then I, again, it's like back to me controlling, then I could meet the needs of my kids. And if their behaviors were showing this unmet need, then I could meet the need to make the behavior stop. And also, if they were still misbehaving, then instead of like blaming them, I started blaming myself that I wasn't enough, that I wasn't doing enough, that I wasn't speaking softly enough, that I wasn't giving enough yeses, that I wasn't doing all of these things and really burned myself out um, trying to do all the things for all the people and then still feeling like a failure because I still had kids with really, really big behaviors and I just couldn't figure out why I couldn't, you know, why I couldn't control it using this, you know, magic formula. And so I think that was one of the harder lessons to learn was it's not 
a magic formula, right? It's, it's definitely the better way to parent our kids. It's definitely the path to them healing, but it's not this like, you know, equation, neat equation of like, you do this thing and out comes this behavior, that it's still a marathon, like an ultra marathon, not a sprint. Um, and that the investments that we're making when we meet our kids' needs, we don't necessarily see the behavior change right away, but we've been in this long enough and we have adult kids now to know that those investments that you're making do matter. But sometimes the behaviors keep going and sometimes we don't understand the value of the investment or we don't get the return back on that investment until years and years later. That is, I think, a really good point and really helpful for all of us and myself included to keep that in mind. Um, that it is an investment. But, you know, what comes to my head is like anytime you're in a relationship with another person, whether that person is your child or your friend, it's still two people. You know, that whole it takes two to tango. Like I can be the best tango instructor mm-hmm. the world has ever known. Right. But if the person wants to be a completely limp noodle and has no interest in doing the dance, like <laughs> there's only so far that, you know, it does take some cooperation and there's different personalities and there's so many different things that have to come into place. Like you said, like for the investment to return to its fullest. And I think that's humbling. But when we choose to enter into parenthood, especially I would say by foster care and adoption, that's something we need to be willing to accept. And we have to release our obsession with control. Otherwise it's going to come and smack you upside the head. It's going to hurt more. than, <laughs> And that has happened to me. So, and I know you just touched on this a little bit. The whole experience of burnout is an experience that, a lot of parents have had. It's one that I have had. And you've done some research and learning about that. And I really enjoyed hearing you talk about that. Yeah. So these are words that I wish I had had 10 years ago. And we know a lot about attachment when our kids come to us. We hear things about attachment disorders. And we know that the early experiences that our kids have impair their ability to trust adults. And we kind of, I think, have as a community started to wrap our heads around that. You know, we, we, when we talk about meeting their needs, right, understanding that their behavior is not personal, that they're, it's out of fear. Um, and another word for that is blocked trust. And Dan Hughes coined that. I think the experience that we haven't yet fully wrapped our minds around is the the next part of that is that when we are in a relationship where there's blocked trust so our child doesn't trust us and so they're kind of they have kind of this wall up when they're interacting with us and like you said patricia it it takes two to tango right relationships were meant to be these beautiful two-way reciprocal streets right where there's always a little bit of give and take and where you never go long long periods of time or continued interactions where there isn't some kind of mutual reciprocation. And so what happens is, is when we're caring for kids who kind of have this protective wall up, we as caregivers can develop something called blocked care. 
And it's subconscious. It's literally like our brain systems starting to shut down in a self-protective move because it's realizing we keep going into this relationship and giving our heart and either there's no return on investment or it feels like there's not, or even worse, there's like hardcore kind of active rejection, right? We're kind of like constantly putting our heart and it's getting ground up and spit back in our face, right? And so we did get to a point with a couple of our kids actually, where um, I was doing all the things that I needed to do as a parent, but my heart kind of had left, right? Like I was kind of robotically giving goodnight hugs and kisses and I was putting meals on the table and I was doing schoolwork and, you know, all the things, but my heart just totally wasn't in it. And I was feeling more and more stressed out. I was feeling more isolated. I was feeling more resentful. Um, I was finding it really, really hard to enjoy my child, to like my child. And then to compound all of that, I would feel really guilty, right? That we had we had asked for this. We had jumped through a lot of hoops for this. We had asked people to fundraise for this. We had asked people to pray for this. I mean, all these things, right? Um, you know, and, you know, as a person of faith, like I believe in unconditional love. And so how could I feel like I just wanted to give up? Um, and I didn't have words and I just thought I was a terrible person, um, for having all of these thoughts. And so when Lisa and I kind of stumbled across this block care and some of Dan Hughes's work, um, it really resonated with a lot of our experiences. And so we did some more digging, we did some more talking to parents and, um, and we actually put together, uh, a training on this. Um, and so there is a, a training for folks um, that we wanted to offer to your audience for free. If they just feel like they're so discouraged in their adoption journey, we want them to know that there is hope because we didn't have words or knowledge to know how to get to the other side. Um, and so we call it the compassion challenge. It's a like 20 minute video. And, um, so your folks can go to the adoption connection.com slash, um, you guys mm -hmm. what they're worth what do we yeah, say we okay so your folks can go to the adoption connection.com slash wtw for what they're worth and pick up that training mm -hmm. for free thank you i can't wait to use that training i feel like i wish i really would have known that term and that it was something that happened in my brain and not just my body and my heart and my mind because and that took me back. And I know you've been there way more recently than I have, but I did feel like a robot. And all this time I've been kind of trying to compare it to like um, postpartum depression almost. Like that's how I've been trying to, I'm like, I tell people, I feel like I had postpartum depression. <laughs> I feel like, you know, that's the closest thing that I could even, and I've never even had postpartum depression. Um, so I, I really like that now I have, the words like you said and just just knowing because we're best friends and we talk about it a lot but uh, you do feel like a robot and you do do all the things that you have to do but I do remember saying I don't like being a mom right now and I don't necessarily like my child and I remember my husband being like do you still want to do this and I'm like yeah, I do. <laughs> I just, you know, it's just so hard, you know, and I, and I felt exactly like that. Like yeah. I knew I loved her, but I was just, 
I didn't know what else to do. I didn't know what else mm-hmm. to do. Um, I always describe it as like feeling like the color just drained from my life. Like, like I was mm-hmm. living in black and white. And anyone who knows me knows I'm not a black and white person. Like I'm like the full rainbow, baby. So She's like the Lisa Frank. Yeah. <laughs> rainbow. So for me to feel like that was like very weird for me. And so I really was like, I don't even feel like I know myself anymore. And I, I was comforted by the fact that many other adoptive and foster moms felt like that too. But I definitely, even as, cause I'm a therapist and I really, I had not considered that what was, there was actually something going on in my brain. You know, I, I hadn't really considered that it was kind of like there, there was some shame. I mean, I remember telling Christina several times, like, I just feel like I'm, I'm not enough. And like maybe you're failing them. Yeah. Like, think maybe god made a mistake and i'm not the one that yeah. should have been chosen to parent him because i clearly am inadequate <laughs> and i just don't and then you feel like you don't even have the strength to try to measure up anymore because mm-hmm. you're just like yeah you're so exhausted and i mean you two are so fortunate to have each other because one of the things that dan hughes talks about it, that can help kind of keep us out of blocked care is having kind of getting that reciprocation, having another nurturing relationship in our life who understands what's going on and can kind of like step in the gap. Right. And, and sometimes the most effective way to do that is to have another mom, another parent who really gets it and can hear you narrate your experience out and they'll reflect it back to you and all of its truth, right. That they'll validate, what you're going through without, you know, judging you for all of those feelings and for not judging your children, right? I think the other big thing to remember here is this is nobody's fault in the adoption picture, right? That the things that happened to our kids were not our fault and they weren't our kids' fault and our kids creating these walls and self-protection isn't their fault, right? Their body's doing what it's designed to do. And then our body's doing what it's designed to do. So, you know, I think it's it's easy, like you said, Patricia, to feel a lot of shame. But we have to be able to talk honestly about these things, about how hard it is with also holding this like both and concept that we still do believe that our kids are are precious and that we can and are called to parent them. And so, you know, having another person who can understand that is one of the best ways to keep your nervous system open among some other things, which we talk about in the training. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, I know many times we've gone to each other just saying like, you're, you'll get it. Or like, just, we talk a lot about feeling judged, you know, or people always want to say like, well, did you try this? Or did you try that? Or, you know, or, oh, they're just, you know, people who just don't, they're, they're well-meaning, but they, they just haven't had that experience with a child from foster care or um, adoption. And so it doesn't always work that way, you know, and a lot of people still don't understand that you have to parent them differently. Well, and I think 
it's like and you said this too it's like even though parenting has been the hardest thing I've ever gone through I'm still such an advocate that advocate that people do it and Mm -hmm. sometimes it's Mm -hmm. scary to really express how much you're struggling you know I mean I'm people being like but are you okay and me being like no like I'm not really okay like actually you know or is it getting better no like for my son like didn't really get better it honestly got worse over time yeah and that's just not the narrative people want to hear so and then you like don't want to like I would never want to discourage someone from not loving a child so it's also I think a lot of us who are in this like we care for people we are the givers of the world and so it's like even when we're in pain we don't want to cause someone else to not get what they need so there's almost like I'm not I'm carrying the burden of my child because I I don't really blame him I understand why he's treating me this way and I don't want other people to not do it because I know these kids need love but also I'm in a lot of pain too Especially when you're carrying all of it and you're trying to figure out like what to do with it. Especially with you because you're adopting older children and you get a lot of, you know, you just, you know, you get a lot of like, oh, like older, like are you sure you don't want to adopt younger or that's going to be harder or, you know, and then so for you to hear all that and then advocate and then have to be honest and, (laughs) you know, real with your hurt is, is scary for Yeah. I always think, you know, if someone hears our story and that's enough to convince them not to foster or adopt, that maybe that's okay. Because I feel like we need the people who can hear that story and still feel 100% called. uh, Because there's really a good chance statistically that you're going to get into this and struggle as much or more than our family has. Right. Yeah. And that's part of the reason we start started this podcast because we want to talk about all sides of it and I totally agree with you the people who need to be in it and who are supposed to be in it are going to be able to hear this Mm -hmm. and then say like wow I really appreciate being more prepared (laughs) for what is probably going to be a part of my life um so yeah but I, I really appreciate you seriously helping me put the words to it as well and I really hope people will take advantage of that resource and I hope that that starts being talked about more in trainings because unrealistic expectations can be very damaging on uh, of the child and of yourself yeah it's not really fair to everyone right and on all all the sides we really want there to be really good, solid training and then, and post-placement support, which is really what the Adoption Connection again. Yeah, wants to be because you don't know what you don't know right until you're in the middle of it. And I probably could have had people tell me a lot of this stuff beforehand, but I'm so stubborn and bullheaded. I don't know that I would have fully integrated it. And so we need people on the other side to be there for us as well. Yeah. That, that's one of the biggest, um, I think, frustrations of a lot of adoptive families is there's this kind of this promise of support 
but then there's really no substance afterwards. Um, you know, I mean, personally, having to look for some out of home support for my son and calling our adoption agency, our local foster care agency, the adoption workers, them telling me, oh, just call the Medicaid office and ask them. Literally, I think they gave me the name of the hospital in town. Like, I didn't know that we had a hospital. Um, calling Medicaid and they acted like I was crazy. Oh, we don't do that. You need to call. Everybody kept telling me to call someone else. And literally the only reason I even found some support is just because I'm kind of good at using Google and because I'm in the mental health field and I knew how to put different types of search terms to find it. But I, I work with teenagers in residential treatment and there are so many adopted kids that are there. And so many times I experience from other people I work with a judgment of adoptive parents and just kind of this like, oh, how could they let it get this bad? Or like, wow, they don't even seem like they care about their kid, you know? You, and so many times I've had to just speak because it's blocked care and I can see, you know, these are not bad people. Most people don't go into adoption like, I want to dislike my kid. Like that just doesn't make any sense. So you seeing it from the other side too, it really shows how much there is a lack of support afterwards and how many people are just not told. I mean, educating parents and they're like, no one told me that. Just I did not know that at all. And now they're in, you know, very difficult situation. So, so important. And I'm very encouraged in recent years that there are a lot of, not necessarily from the government, but a lot of independent people who are doing things, providing support, even just like support groups. The resources are out there now. So at least there's that. But we do still need to do a better job. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think there's also something to be said, even just to go further back, in the name of support and training, um, you know, my co-host at the Adoption Connection, Lisa, is a birth mom. So she placed a son for adoption as a teenager. And and I, as an adoptee, even though I've had a, a very positive adoption experience as an adoptee, I think also, you know, thinking about how can we support birth parents to continue to parent their kids and for family preservation and things like that, you know, just Mm -hmm. so that it's one less loss, one less broken relationship for a child. And I think that makes a big difference in, in their paths. And, you know, we see in so many stories where kids, especially when they're adopted as older kids, just have this tether, right? This invisible tether, Remember, like the movie, the blind side, you know, Michael always wanted to go back to his mom, even though on paper, it just didn't seem like a logical, you know, next step for support. Uh, so I think, you know, keeping that in mind too, there's so much to be done in, in the foster care and adoption world um, in family preservation services as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally agree. That, that would avoid or at least mitigate a lot of, not that the kids wouldn't still struggle, but like you said, it would be one less loss. And there will always be a place for adoption. I think, you know, it has its place. And there are certainly kids who will need a permanent family who's not their birth family. 
Uh, but I think there probably have been a lot of cases where, you know, we have deemed a certain type of family or certain characteristic kind of better, quote unquote. Um, and I think we underestimate, you know, just how hard it is, how traumatic it is for kids to switch primary caregivers. And in the foster care world, you know, when you jump from placement to placement, that's happening a lot, you know. And and even for our son from Korea, Korea has a foster system that's similar to the States. And just because of geographic reasons, um, getting him closer to the city where a lot of the adoption happens. You know, we were his fifth primary caregivers when we adopted him at two and a half. So that was a good segue because when we chat on the phone, we also talked about your experience as an adoptee. And I think your experience is different than some of the other experiences I've heard. And you could even talk a little bit about the Enneagram and that because we love the Enneagram. And it's so interesting. So yeah, talk a little about that. Yeah. So like I said, I have a really positive view of my story. And in fact, it wasn't actually my idea to adopt into our family. When I met my husband, he said two things to me. Um, he said, one, I'm really looking for a wife. So if at any point in time you realize you can't marry me, just let me know and we can be done. Love it. Um, and then I, never I know nothing like keeping it real on a first date. Right. And he said, and the second thing he said was I've always wanted to adopt. So if you're also not okay with that, also we can be done. <laughs> and he actually, I mean, literally like this was like one of our first times we'd ever met. So he did not know that I was an adoptee. Like that's how new we were. And so I remember saying to him, well, actually I'm adopted. You didn't know that, but I think it went okay for me. And so I think I have to be okay with this. <laughs> and um, I didn't, I knew that I have two younger siblings, not biologically related, both adopted from Korea. I knew that their experience of their adoptions had been a little different than mine. I also have a best friend who also happens to be a Korean adoptee. And so I, I didn't realize until I was an adoptive mom that there was a conversation to be had about loss and grief and some really big feelings in adoption and that some adoptees had really big feelings about their adoption. And some of them are really hard, like the, that they were negative feelings, that they thought, they thought their adoption had been a disservice to who they were um, for their identity and that transracial adoption is really, really hard. And so I never want to invalidate any of those stories. Um, but I also think that there are a lot of, um, I'll call them kind of well-adjusted, happy, you know, folks who process their adoption story in a more positive light who it's never occurred to them to tell their story. And, and they may not even have adoptee as a big piece of their identity puzzle. I didn't for a long time. I mean, I always knew I was adopted, but it wasn't like something I thought about at every birthday or every day even. And I actually remember my husband saying to me one time, like, do you ever think about your birth mom? And I actually felt guilty when I said, no, not really. Like, you know, possibly once or twice in my life, but it, it wasn't just this like reoccurring thing. And I, I think he said something like, I think if I had been adopted, I would think about her a lot or something. And I just remember thinking, Ooh, like, you know, Ooh, what kind of adoptee does that make me? Um, 
But when I found the Enneagram a couple of years ago, I was able to kind of make more sense of my story. So I'm a type seven. So if you're not familiar with the Enneagram, that just means that I type sevens are people who kind of are here for all the fun and not here for all the negative feelings. Uh, we're kind of eternal optimists. And we also tend to be future focused and reframe experiences almost in real time so that they're positive, so that we kind of log all the things as positive. And so I think because of that, I, and I'm also, uh, I process experiences with thinking with my head. And so when my parents said, well, your mother couldn't take care of you. And so she loved you enough to put you in a situation where you could be put in a home where people could care for you. I was like, check, check, check logic. It all makes sense. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of like feeling in that. And I, and because I'm forward thinking, it was like, okay, so that's my story. And then what's next? Like I've always been a what's next kind of girl. And so the Enneagram, I think, helped me understand why I would process my story in the way that I have. But then also it leaves all the room for all the other lenses. Um, if we think about, you know, personality typing in the Enneagram as like colored lenses, it leaves room for all the other lenses and all the other experiences um, for adoptees to tell their story through and that mine isn't right or wrong and theirs isn't right or wrong. Um, but there are nine pretty distinctive ways that we experience life, including loss and abandonment and grief and hard things. And so that I think has been really freeing and it's been really fun to use that as a tool as I help parents kind of navigate um, not just behaviors because I think the Enneagram also shades how we view and experience challenging behaviors, but also to help them help their kids navigate their story in a way that honors their personality type. Yeah, I really appreciated that because it's easy for us to see personality in a lot of other things, but I don't think I've really mm -hmm. considered personality and how my children view adoption, their adoption experience. And I can see, and my, I only have two children, and they have completely different ways of processing that experience. And it's helpful to know that when we have adoptees on the show and that th those do not represent every adoptee voice, you know, and we need to be careful. I think you said this to me on the phone. We need to be careful to listen and get to know our child and not put our own ideas about what they might be feeling. I think I definitely do that also because I'm a therapist, you know, I'm like, you might be feeling this, you know, I'm putting it out there. Like, are you feeling this today? You know, like holidays, you know, I'm like, Hey, I bet maybe you're missing your dad today. Not that I'm saying that's bad, but I have that tendency to kind of suggest emotions and, you really made me think just about like, maybe that's not how my child is processing this. And that's probably okay that they're just, maybe they process it differently. Yeah. I talk a lot about following our kids lead and thinking of questions that open the conversation and leave room for all the answers, but don't necessarily kind of project a certain experience onto our kids. Right. And I think if you've been listening to the louder voices of adoptees in the last decade, 
um, it's easy to assume that our kids are feeling certain ways on holidays, on birthdays, you know, on um, family day anniversaries, you know, anniversaries of adoption and things like that. So I think the questions of, you know, are you thinking of your birth mother or would you like to celebrate this day or how would you like to celebrate this day or how would you like to mark this day? I guess even celebration, right, is a is a leading term. You know, how would you like to acknowledge this day? You know, and giving options that we could recognize that it's sad, like we could have a day that's a little bit more somber and a little bit more in memorial, depending on your child's story. But then we could also take the next day and celebrate God's goodness in, you know, what we, in bringing families together and creating healing opportunities. So I think it's just different. And I think it changes, right? So one year, it might be one thing for your kid and another year, it might be different, um, you know, just because of brain development and their capacity to understand different parts of their story and then integrate that in different ways. It's just, it's a lot. And it, and I also, you know, like to encourage parents because it feels like a lot. I hear from a lot of parents who just feel like there's no way they can kind of win <laughs> at this. Um, you know, that we have to redefine our definition of success and our children, you know, this goes back to the behavior, you know, when we are talking about empower to connect, we can do all the things right. And our kids could still be upset. They could still feel hurt. They could still feel angry. Um, they could still tell you that you didn't do everything right or anything right. Um, and so I think just to take all of that in stride and with a grain of salt, which is hard and it's really hard if you're in blocked care, but, um, you know, doing the best that you can. And if you're listening to this podcast, I can already guarantee you you're on the right path. And so just to give yourself, be kind to yourself, give yourself some grace um, and take some of the pressure off that we adoptive parents do not have to get it all right all the time. That's a freeing truth. Now I'm just letting it sit. And it's hard, right? Because our kids, you know, I talk about our kids as being fragile sometimes, like their nervous systems are fragile, their felt safety is fragile, their regulation is fragile. Um, and that feels like a big responsibility. It feels like a bigger responsibility than parenting neurotypical kids. Yeah, it does. I experience that a lot, like pressure. And you feel yeah. like you have to make up for like yeah. this, all this loss, you know, like sometimes you just feel like, oh, she never had this before. I need to get her, ah, you know, or, you know, just, you, you just always feel a pressure to make up for something in some way or to, especially when they're older. I mean, I, I'm speaking from my experience, but. Like, have you guys ever seen that analogy where they put the jars and every little pebble is a day? Mm -hmm. Have you guys seen that? Yeah. And they're like, then you only have this many yeah. pebbles. I like, this sends me into like a panic attack because <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, like the jar of towards 18, like my jars were already half or more full. Like I yeah. have no time. <laughs> and like, I am a planner and I have perfectionist tendencies. And so I'm just like, can't compute, can't compute, <laughs> like explosion. So I... <laughs> That has been very, very hard for me. So learning to accept that I don't have control over what came before. And it's really not even realistic for me to expect that I can just kind of not even erase because we don't want to erase, but 
I can help them to heal from everything or I can remedy all the habits. You know, I just have to accept that that's not my job and God's not even asking me to do that. And that is just a self-imposed fantasy (laughs) that I have. But that has been a process to accept. That has been hard for me. Well, and for those of you who have adopted older kids and and you, Patricia, 18 isn't magically our deadline for all the things. And I thought it was. And we adopted a son at 14. You know, that didn't give us a lot of years. And I thought it felt, I was like, oh, four years. We can do a lot in four years. Well, let me tell you, that four years (laughs) went by so quickly. And there were so many other kids with so many other needs. Uh, It was not four years, right? But if we prioritize our ability to stay in relationship with our kids, especially our older kids, and that can be really hard because there seems to be a lot of battles that could be fought with teenagers and social media and grades and social situations and jobs and responsibility and all the things. But if we can prioritize how we interact with our kids in a way that allows us to stay connected with them beyond 18. Because honestly, if we don't at 18, they will, especially because they haven't had this long, long attachment. You know, if you adopt a child at 14 and you fight all the battles at 18, they're like, peace out. You know, like I didn't really want a family. If it was going to be like this, adios. And there's just not that attachment to keep them tethered. And, And I say that from experience that we had older kids that we fought all the wrong battles for and they left. And I thought, well, we just messed that up. But we have been gifted second chances with all of them. And we have, I, now I feel like we have a lifetime to continue to pour in and help them learn all the adulting lessons out there, right? So that so, so that when our son buys his first car and goes a whole year without changing the oil, we can be like, dude, you might want to change the oil. That's a thing. So sorry we didn't make that clear at the beginning, but you should probably go get an oil change this week. <laughs> right. Yes. And that, but that's another one of our, you know, like our society tells us like 18, mm-hmm. 18, like graduation. Um, you know, that's the that's when we lose all ability to influence. And I know that's not true. But that's definitely kind of ingrained sometimes, um, especially just from like a legal standpoint. You know, people are like, oh, at 18, my hands are off. Like you're on your own type message. Yeah. And if you don't take care of that blocked care, that's what you're going to say, yeah. right? I thought a lot of people. <laughs> You'll be the first one to be like, yeah. peace out. <laughs> yeah, that's how a lot of people, a lot of people are. So. Good. Well, did you learn something? I feel like we could just talk every week. You're definitely going to have to come back if you're willing, Melissa, because it was really interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely learned some stuff. And it's just a lot of matter of like perspective shift. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of what you've just challenged us with personally today has been perspective shift. Just mm-hmm. a small way of think, like changing your thinking and your mindset about our situation and the lack of control we have and our children and their experiences and just challenging how we usually think with what that reality of adoption and foster care is. And that's what people really need to hear because that's what's going to produce long-term effects for both our children, but also people to stay as foster parents and adoptive parents. Um, 
So I thank you for the hard work you're doing, <laughs> all the hard work you're putting behind everything that you're saying and yeah. that you're sharing with others. And um, I'm really excited for our guests to hear this one. Yeah, thank you for wanting to come on our yeah. show. Well, thank you for accepting me. Yeah, it's been so fun. I would love to come back um, whenever you want. I love, clearly I love to talk. Um, and and again, folks can hear more at our podcast as well, um, The Adoption Connection. And we try to be what we needed 10 years ago. Um, and your Instagram, so, is that just your, the your handle is? Yeah, the adoption. Yeah, we're kind of the adoption connection okay. everywhere. So on Facebook, we have a Facebook group. Um, we're on Instagram, and we have a mix of stories, but also really practical things. So people can go. It's one of those things where you go back through the archives and find the issue you're having, and then find the podcast. Oh, where were you when I was going? <laughs> That's the thing. Like I, I, so we hear so many foster parents being like, "I just felt like there was nothing out there." I'm like. I know. I was scouring Pinterest like it was going to give me some magic activity to do with my daughter. Like, I literally tried everything, but I just, like you said, you don't know what you don't know until you're in it, mm -hmm. and you have no choice but to find some answers, and then you start, you know, we are really lucky in that we have a pretty good foster and adoptive community around us, mm -hmm. um, and that we can learn from each other and learn about new trainings from each other. Um, so that's really, really helpful. But at the same time, there is still such a need um, for the reality and practical tips. Um, so we'll definitely send our listeners to you guys, and we will be visiting you. <laughs> we will also listen. Yeah. 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 And everyone, grab that training. Yeah. Uh, theadoptionconnection.com slash WTW. Yeah. We'll post that link too. So thank you for speaking with us today and sharing what you know. Yeah, thanks for what you guys are doing as well. And I'm so glad you have each other. <laughs> if you liked today's episode or any of our episodes, we'd really appreciate a kind review on Apple Podcasts or just to share with your friends who you think might be interested and hearing the stories that are told. 